Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Everybody wants to fuck you. The goal is to not get fucked. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. I am here with the two hosts of the new podcast, Psych. Paul, how does it feel to be a homewrecker? <laughs> it feels it feels it feels awful. And <laughs> and I feel the only way I can make it up, Tamler, is if you and I have our own podcast. <laughs> and then we would have a perfect a perfect triangle relationship and nobody would feel left out. <laughs> that would be good. We're very excited to have Paul on in spite of the personal uh, resentment and rage that I feel. You're you're a big man to to bring me in here. We're going to talk about Tar, Todd Field's movie that um, you told Dave in one of your many discussions over the last (laughs) uh, few months. Um, uh, You told him that you loved this movie. I... Uh, David watched the movie. He said he loved it. I had seen it. I've now seen it three times, including once in the theater. Yeah, it's a big mystery of a movie, and we have a lot to talk about with that. It's Kubrick-esque, which I I didn't, I just had no idea going into it. Well, you know that Todd Field is Nick Nightingale in Eyes Wide Shut and apparently just studied Kubrick as he was over in England for like a year and a half shooting <laughs> like three scenes. I did not. Yeah. Can you remind me the character of Nick Nightingale? He's the friend of Tom Cruise that he runs into at the bar. He's playing piano, and oh, he and, he's, and he get, and he school. leads him to the secret place. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So uh, yeah. Remember, David, when I said you were going to lead us into the... <laughs> oh, that's what... <laughs> yes, before This is we what start... I mean about his work suffering. <laughs> it's, all, it's all falling apart. Um, before we talk Tar, uh, Paul, you got in a bit of a uh, uh, Twitter... I don't know, Twitter beef? Twitter, a little Twitter, some, some drive-bys exchanged about something that actually was triggered huh, uh, at Cornell. So Cornell recently... Students recently proposed that there be a mandatory trigger warning policy of some sort at Cornell, and it was quickly shot down in a statement by our president and our provost. And um, honestly, this passed without too much uh, attention for a few days. I mean, it was just sort of like a comment that they appended to the student council movement. And then all of a sudden, it got national press for, among other things, you know, the bravery of Cornell in finally standing up to the woke, uh, to the woke, <laughs> the woke mob. mob. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Paul, so Paul, you tweeted that, um, 
Well, and I had your tweet up. I have it. Uh, I agree with the decision. Nobody should force profs to use trigger warnings, but I am mildly pro trigger warning, and I've used them in the past. It's often basic decency to warn people, and this includes students, before exposing them to shocking material. So I stand by this. I, you know, maybe I'm biased here, but I think my opinion is just incredibly reasonable and shouldn't be controversial. I feel as about well, many of my opinions, but, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I realize people got, and it's also, I, I guess, my most woke opinion, if you yeah. realize it, which I'm mildly pro trigger warnings on. And I'm even, and we could go on, I, I, there was a point where I even made a point of making a trigger warning and allowed students to opt out of a paper in a seminar hmm. I had. But how many did? None. It, and it was it was a seminar. The paper. So what I was talking about in a tweet, maybe this this is just worth talking about, is I think it's just basic politeness to warn people before you're going to show them. Anyone's going to shock and offend them. And I think everybody knows this. It's just that somehow because woke people are saying we've got to give trigger warnings if you mention Donald Trump and we got to let students take the class off if you're talking about anything. The ridiculous right. positions. I feel that the anti-woke crowd, I say, no, you know, you could like throw feces at the students without work, and that, <laughs> that's just fine because it's actually good for them. And I think, you know, <laughs> in, in some way, students are kind of like people. And so the same, the same things, rules you apply to, to your friends and people in everyday life uh, would apply. And that includes, includes, you know, warning people before you, you, you throw something unpleasant at them. You see, clearly show them like, I don't know what, like snuff films or... Right. He takes the John Height dilemmas and films them. <laughs> yeah, um, we we reenact them in class. <laughs> okay, okay, somebody, you gotta I, be the chicken. <laughs> you be my sister. <laughs> um, I totally agree with you, Paul. And I actually, like, I've had to rethink my own just personal preference about whether to use them. Common courtesy. Right now, things are a little fraught. Yeah, like you say, like I'm looking through your thread, kindness, respect, it's that's all it is. There's no political statement here. You know, you're not make, you're not taking part in the culture wars. You're just saying, "Hey, look, this could be a little upsetting. Just letting you know. Just a heads up." That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And that, that's actually well, why I think it 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 shouldn't be enforced because I think professors under academic freedom with some extreme limits have a right to be somewhat rude and insensitive and shocking. And, you know, I don't think I, I, I don't think that's very kind. I sometimes think that's bad teaching, but it doesn't we, we shouldn't force them to to conform to our rules. I'm just saying that that you, you have a right to be an asshole in class, but you shouldn't. Yeah. 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 And as a matter I agree of with that too. I, I do too. As a matter of policy, it seems misguided. And, you know, it, it seems as if just at the very least, there are logistical problems that would make this a non-starter, like what, what you warn about and when and how you enforce it. I think it was a stupid, well, a, a misguided attempt at, at to, to force professors into doing this. But I was honestly a bit surprised at some of the response on Twitter, which which mostly consisted of, of people telling you that clearly you didn't understand the science yeah. because uh, studies, have, <laughs> studies studies have been this was the offensive part of <laughs> yeah. this whole episode. So so there's research showing that tw- trigger warnings might actually make people more anxious. Um, so it doesn't have the alleviating effect that people think it does. Um, but it seemed to me so incredibly weird that people were talking right past what Paul was saying and and making a completely different argument just because I, I think they they view this as such a politically charged topic. Um, it's it it almost was like Paul, you were c- 
caricaturing it to some extent, but like it's almost as if they think that that shocking our students is the way to not coddle them because this generation is so coddled. So so don't give them a warning about it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. you know, some there's there's. In preparation for this, I did a little bit of reading. I read some of those empirical papers, and and sometimes what they'll they'll argue is some people argue is, um, it you should you should uh, the way you deal with somebody who has a phobia or anxiety is sometimes exposure therapy, where you you present yeah. to them the object of their fear and anxiety. They realize that it's not dangerous, and then they they um they calm down. In fact, David and I in our podcast psych. Um, mm. Talk about exposure. <laughs> heard about that? And, yeah. yeah. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have to mention it every I, uh, I, four I'm, or five I, I feel I'm ha- experiencing that right <laughs> now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, nothing bad's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 and you know, I, I don't think. First thing, the studies. I think the studies are fine. Um, the studies they involve you get Amturkers and you 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 give them upsetting stories, and these are and often these people have a history of trauma, and then you say after the story, say how do you feel. And it turns out that that giving them a warning ahead of time doesn't make them feel any better. Maybe even makes them feel a little bit worse. That was unclear. But I wasn't talking about trauma. I wasn't talking <laughs> yeah. about an artificial situation like that. I was just talking about how you would normally treat people. It's kind of like spoilers. So there, there was a very, I think, a very bad study showing that that little M Turk study uh, showing that spoilers uh, don't make things worse. And of course, this is because they use unrealistic. Same and then other better studies showing show that spoilers um, do people don't really do don't really like spoilers. But if if you were watching a show and I say, you, you guys should really watch Secession. And you say, yeah, I can't wait for next episode. Don't tell me what's going to happen. I say, no, no, I'm going to tell you what happened. Because <laughs> because according to Google Scholar, it's it's, it's, it's good for you. I say, no, no, no yeah, don't right. be a jerk. Don't tell me. No, no, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> well, that's not how you treat people. These studies, I so I didn't read them, but isn't, isn't it that trigger warnings, one of the things that they're supposed to do is is if you know that it's going to make you very uncomfortable, you can opt out. Yeah. It's it's not that I'm going to trigger warn you and then make you listen to the stuff, like presumably. So well, I'll, I don't I'll think, think it's, 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 I think the like used in it's not ways. always like that. No, no, yeah. but it could. Like, so nobody's being yeah. for like if you gave a trigger warning, you said today we're going to talk about suicide and a student said just walked out because they knew. Like that is available to them yeah. in a way that 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 it wasn't if you hadn't triggered them. Can yeah. I just say what is triggering me is this headline: "The data is in. Trigger warnings don't work." From the Chronicle, <laughs> it's like, first of all, like I, you know, based on the study, it's like, uh, you know, who the who the fuck knows? But also, just this idea of whether they work or not. And this is, I guess, what you're saying is so not the point. Nobody is thinking this is going to work to solve trauma or like racism or whatever. It's like asking if you should take off your shoes like (laughs) when you come in someone's house doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Holding the door open for people doesn't work. (laughs) New studies, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. This is... This is one of the worst examples of people taking something that's totally neutral and and politicizing it. And, but I think like you guys are a part of it. Like to to run studies on whether trigger warnings work or not is on, is already to like play that game, you know. So let me s- steal, man. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm using this almost unironically. <laughs> um, I know it's a good uh, word. Maybe we should. Use <laughs> Um, I think that the those 
like so there's two issues one is whether the studies show what they intend to show and the other is if they do does that matter for what we're talking about and i guess if if the claim was very clearly that the reason professors should use trigger warnings is that they um, do prevent people from reliving trauma and then you show that in fact it doesn't if you believe that i i guess that it's not unreasonable for them to think that that's the case um what bothered me, though, was that Paul repeatedly was saying, no, like, I'm just saying as a matter of politeness or as a matter of kindness, like, I don't think it's a bad thing. And people kept, like, shoving the data. But look at the scientific data. Such trigger warnings cause, all caps, not relieve anxiety. It's like, who's the fragile, who are the, who's the fragile group here? You know what I mean? And, like, yeah. you say, you know, like, I think you say that, like, people are a little less People are more resilient, less fragile. They can handle a trigger warning. Like yeah. it, that's how ridiculous this debate has gone. Is that the the snowflakes are the one that worry about whether the students get exposed to a trigger warning? Yeah, this there's some there's, there's, there's some irony here that, that yeah. people who are arguing, well, you shouldn't coddle <laughs> students, but don't you dare give them a trigger warning; they'll just fall <laughs> apart. And in, in some way, I mean, I was going back and forth with, with Dan Gilbert, who's somebody I, I often disagree with, but always respect. And, and Dan was saying, in the end, a lot of these things will ultimately reduce to empirical questions. And I think, I think David's example, in a sense, is the empirical question is, do students appreciate what you're doing? If they, yeah. What if they will find right. it condescending? and distracting and unpleasant. You found that out. You'd say, oh, it's going to stop doing it. So in some yeah. way, you're always sensitive to people's responses. Yeah. But the responses aren't the sort you test in an MTurk study. They're more like, you know, yeah, you ask people, what do you want? It's just normal human discourse. Yeah. yeah. And also, they don't care. Probably, like, like 99.9% .9 of the time, they don't care. They I, like Nobody's like, oh, you're patronizing me. I'm actually an adult and I'm strong and I can handle whatever you're going to show me without you warning me. Nobody thinks like that unless you're already like your brain has been exposed to this like culture war virus, you know? I think the world would be better you... off with more trigger warnings. Just just day to day. Like yeah. I just remember, I haven't had conversations with, with with somebody and all of a sudden they're telling me this disgusting operation they had or or right. something. I was you know <laughs> I, I remember when when my kids were little um I talked to a cab driver. He oh, your kids are little. Oh, you hear about those kids? They died. That was horrible. And and like, and he starts telling me the story. And they say, "Dude, let me opt out." Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to ask if you've ever, if either of you have ever had the uh, the feeling that you wish you had been given a warning. And I have a similar one where I was with a couple of people who um, said, "Oh, let's watch this show. It's really good. It's like a true crime show." And I was like, "Well, like I'm not really that into." Like shit about serial killers. Like it kind of. I'm not a middle-aged woman. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was like, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, they're like, oh no, it's fine. And so we start watching it, and they're just literally talking about the gory details, showing crime scene photos. And I was like, I'm out. Like, yeah. like I'm maybe I'm a wuss compared to you two women, um, but I do did not want to see that. I did not expect to see that. Like, and I feel a little, a little pissed off that you made me watch it. Um, I want trigger warnings. Like I feel strongly about this for when somebody's about to tell like a really boring story about, about <laughs> so, their life. So I have a twenty-five minute story which doesn't really have an ending. Is this okay with you? Are yeah, you exactly. I would just say no. I would opt out, um, but nobody ever does that. Or like the the minute someone says, I, "You know, I had a, a super interesting dream last oh, night." Yeah, yeah. We trigger <laughs> warning. Sometimes you just go right into the dream. Yeah. I'm actually weird. I like to hear about people's dreams. I really? don't like oh, to hear yeah. about their real life. 
You know what other thing I really hate is uh, reading people's clever quote unquote prompts for chat GPT and then they post oh the images. Like, like, <laughs> they post the conversation and like, isn't this crazy? Still, I asked it such a random question. <laughs> I, look, here's uh, like a, a, like Trump's indictment sung to a Gilbert right. and Sullivan song. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, I kind of like those. Okay, I want to trigger a warning when somebody says, we're having a discussion. Well, I have four points to make. And I'm like, I don't want to listen to you make four points. But that is a trigger warning, actually. That itself is a trigger warning. Only only if I have the option of opting. It's true. Yes, you want the option. You're right. That is a trigger warning because then when you get point three, I know there's going to be a point four. So I don't relax. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I once used a trigger warning in the more heavy-duty sense, and I'm curious whether I did the right thing. Um, it's, of course, a seminar on moral psychology, and I assigned an article by Jeb Rubenfeld on rape. And it was a very interesting legal article where he basically argued mm-hmm. that the, the notion of rape as sex without consent doesn't work. And it was it, one of the most interesting articles I've ever, I've ever read, actually, because he points out that in everywhere else in the law, consent requires uh, somebody being informed. But if you deceive somebody into having sex with you, putting aside some really strange cases, it doesn't count as rape. If you tell somebody you're much richer than you are and they have sex with you, you haven't raped them. He said, but if sex was consent, that, that would normally violate consent. So he, he talks about, and this was in the context of a course where I assigned David Livingston Smith talking about lynching, talking about all sorts of Jonathan Haidt and some of the disgusting examples. But for this one, I said in the syllabus, if you don't want to um, attend this class, you can opt out, and we'll figure out some some other readings to do in another assignment. Good thing or bad thing? I have zero problem with that. I mean, I, yeah. I it's I would have but, zero problem with you that you did, or if you did, like yeah. if you didn't. That's how. I feel. Yeah, I mean, I think that that the syllabus, in a way, is a, a, a long trigger warning. Yeah. If you have content, right, you put you put the reading. When I used to teach a moral psych seminar, I would tell students look over the material. We're going to talk about all this stuff. Some of it is uncomfortable. Um, and so just know you don't have to take this class. Um, but really what I'm upset about now is we're going to have to put another trigger warning before this conversation because you brought that up. we got to have Liza come and give a trigger warning. You've pointed like, out, yeah. out a while ago, your podcast, and I've heard of none other, begins with an extended trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, it does. Bad words yeah. and possibly inappropriate jokes. Yeah, and we some, were, some people say, the bad words I could take, the inappropriate humor. No, I'm out. That's I'm right. Out. Yeah. Yeah, you honestly, know, like, what I think about that story, Paul, is that it's super erogatory. It's like, you didn't have yeah. to do it, but it's totally fine that you do it. And, yeah, the, yeah, and you're even willing to, like, put an extra work if people take you up on it. I mean, yeah, it's anti-science, but whatever. Same I mean, it's, that's part, it, it, there's an intuition there. So if, if, if I said it for something else and because we're discussing uh, Trump, and I know this is upsetting because many people are unhappy Trump was president. That would be foolish. I yeah. think there's there's fool there's dumb trigger warnings which apply oh, for things that that assume people are extremely sensitive. And yeah. the fact that half of one percent of people respond by getting extremely upset for any given that's not enough to provide a trigger warning. But but rape is a category that many people are really totally. upset by, and and suicide is another. Um, yeah. v- certain disgusting visual depictions is another. It's just, it's, it's not an enormous list. Yeah. Can I say one last thing about the people who are replying with the science? Like they're making it sound as if 
actually, Paul, I'm the good person here because I've read the science and it's doing more harm. Yeah. I'm so concerned with harming my students that I am the right. I, I'm the mensch here. Like you, that's what we were saying. It's like yeah. they're the fragile ones. They're the yeah, snowflakes. Yeah, right. They care yeah, about their right. students more than I do. Yeah. yeah. I think one more point, which is this gets politicized in the, the sort of standard way where the left, the, the woke are hyper concerned and want the triggers. And then, you know, people on the right to anti-woke, you know, mock this and say this. But there's another way to look at this. And I think I got this from Scott Alexander, who says, look, I'm a libertarian. As a libertarian, I love trigger warnings. I love the ability to make informed choices. Maybe they shouldn't be mandated. But, um, but you know, I, I make choices all through my life about what courses to take, what to listen to, what to read. Some advanced knowledge about what I'll enjoy and what I won't is, is welcome. I mean, it's so obvious that it's annoying that you even need to make these obvious points. One of the worst examples of the way culture wars are rotting our brains. I guess the, the positive side is people like me who never would have thought to do it before now have it in my head that maybe that's a good idea in some cases. And yeah. nobody has ever forced me to do it or even like... Yeah. I am happy that Cornell wrote the opinion that it did, though, that this shouldn't be mandatory. Like, I like I think that was uh, the right yeah. decision. But, but yeah. yeah. And in my part, from my perfectly reasonable opinion, I got canceled. Just like, <laughs> just like Lydia Tarr. Uh, there you go. What a segue. Uh, you're getting good at this. That's yeah. bad for me. <laughs> Very bad for me. All right. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about Tarr. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, it's my firm belief that therapy is a method to achieve self-discovery, but in particular, I think that it's a good method to avoid self-deception. Finding a therapist who you can build a relationship with and who will be honest with you about, let's be honest, things that you lie to yourself about, things that might be holding you back because you're unwilling to face them, features of your own character, that can be a pretty daunting thing. But in the context of a therapeutic relationship, I think it's one of the safest, best places to achieve that kind of insight into yourself. Of course, it's not all about avoiding self-deception. Perhaps you're struggling from anxiety or depression or excessive anger, or maybe you're just having insomnia and need somebody who's trained in the right kind of therapy to help you with those specific problems. But I think by and large, treating therapy is an opportunity to grow and using a therapist to provide that kind of safe relationship in which you can grow is one of the biggest benefits of therapy in general. So if you're thinking about trying therapy, why don't you give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if for some reason you're not happy with who you were assigned. So why don't you go ahead and discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BBW today and get 10% off of your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash BBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we love to thank everybody for all the ways you get in touch with us through email, on Twitter, in the Reddit community, on Instagram, Facebook. If you would like to do any of these things, you can reach us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read all the emails, even if we don't have a chance to reply to very many of them. You can follow us on Twitter, at Tamler for me, at Peas for David, and at Very Bad Wizards for the Very Bad Wizards account. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and join the Reddit community. There's usually a lot of good stuff that's going on there. And finally, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, which may or may not help us, but I think it probably does. And you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which we know helps, and it helps spread the word. It helps our podcast reach other people. Of course, also word of mouth, which is probably the best way to let other people know about our podcast if you enjoy it. And this is just me this time. Um, if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, that you can go to our support page on the website. You'll find a lot of different ways to do that. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can buy some swag. Or you can join our Patreon community. And we love our Patreon patrons. We put up a lot of good stuff bonus stuff on there uh, at $1 and up per episode. So basically $2 a month. You get all the volumes of Dave's Beats and um, ad-free episodes. At $2 and up, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, including The Ambulators, our Deadwood podcast. We're now in season two. We do detailed breakdowns of every episode. And uh, I think I speak for David here where uh, I can say that this is one of the best things that we've ever done. We really enjoy them anyway. Um, $5 and up, you can vote on an episode topic once every six months or so. And you get access to our Brothers Karamazov series, another thing that we really enjoyed. And we're thinking about doing another summer, I don't know, great books deep dive too. So if you have any suggestions, uh, please let us know. And at $10 and up, the highest tier that we have, you can ask us a question. Every month, you can ask us a question, and we will answer it in video form. And then we also release an audio form of that for all of our bonus episode uh, tier patrons. We really enjoy those as well. We have another one coming to you very soon, probably on Thursday. And of course, the ambulators, which will come on off weeks from the main episode. So thank you, everyone. We are very grateful for all the support and all the different ways you reach out. Now let's get back to the podcast with Paul and David and me discussing Todd Field's Tar. All right, we're back to talk about Todd Field's movie Tar starring uh, Kate Blanchett. Um And this was a movie that came out in 2022. It was, it actually played in theaters for a while. I didn't get to see it the first time in the theater because um, it was kind of, like, I don't, I don't think it did that well theatrically. No, but it didn't. Yeah, uh, it got a lot of Oscar nominations. I don't think it won any, which is unfortunate because I definitely think it's like uh, one of the best movies of that year, if not the best. Um, yeah. Paul, what did you think? I thought it was fantastic. I thought, I thought it was really, really a masterpiece. Um, it, it did a lot of things very well. 
it was it was beautifully shot. The dialogue was amazing. It was uh, it was clever. It was it was in some way ambiguous and hard to figure out, but in a good way, not in a sort of a sloppy yeah. way. In fact, in fact, I was I was just with some friends a little while ago, and somebody hadn't seen a movie and asked me what it was about, and I just I said I was like into saying, and there's this composer Tar who was sexually involved with these people she worked with, and somebody said, no, she wasn't. You don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and and right. he said, you know, he said, and he said they 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 left that. It was not clear. They gave no strong evidence. It was true. You had to assume that. I said, well, yeah, but you know, and the fact that we could see the movie in that sort of different way, I, I loved it. And and I think at a deep level, I'm going to talk about this. There there are some real puzzles about certain things that are going on there, but they're they're good yeah. puzzles. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's well put, David. What do you think? I felt the same way. I didn't know. I don't know why. You know, I hadn't read much about it the first time I watched it. I for I don't know how long for the first 30 minutes I thought I don't know if I like this it's the dialogue seems stilted the people seem fake it's this sort of like hoity-toity like I don't know how to describe this world of both rich and and like intelligentsia that the, like that, the movie version of the New York Art Festival Exactly yeah. yeah and and I thought that the lines were being delivered as if they were lines and I was I was really puzzled I was starting to conclude that I just it was must have been one of these these misfires that I don't agree with so many people who I would normally agree with and then as the movie progressed uh, it became something else and what it became was so perplexing to me that at the end of that first viewing I all I could think of was to go immediately and read as much as I could yeah. and watch it again. Yeah, right. And and that is the mark of a of a great movie. I mean, I think it hits bu- a bunch of buttons for me. There there are layers of mystery and weirdness, but done subtly, uh, there are details in there that that point you to something else going on. What that is, I'm hoping. I think it's Tamil. You were saying. I'm hoping by the end of this conversation, I know a little bit more about what what that is. But yeah. Yeah, I'm also hoping that. And I honestly believe it might happen. Like, I feel like I need to talk through this movie. It's a Rorschach test in terms of just what you think about it. I think initially a lot of people thought it was a cancel culture comment, like that that was maybe a central theme. And maybe, Paul, you think that, so we'll talk about that. I don't think that, although I totally understand why people do. And I, like you, Dave, I liked it just because it was so kind of beautifully done and it was so patient in the first yeah. 20, 25 minutes. And already you're there's just certain things that you're wondering what's going on, yeah. like people texting during. I still but, don't know what that yeah. opening scene is, like what, what she's texting and who yeah. and why. I, I, yeah. yeah, I wrote that down. Did you write some of that down? I wrote, yes, I wrote, yeah. I wrote some of that down too. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's like I, I feel like I'm projecting what I want uh, it to be about a lot of the time, like when I'm trying to figure out what's going on in a particular scene or when I'm trying to think about the whole movie. And in that way, I, I think like like you said, Paul, it is mysterious, but in a good way. Yeah. I don't feel like I can pin it down. I will honestly change my mind about this movie or like things will coalesce as a result of the conversation. That's just a really good movie if you, you want to dig into yeah. it, you know, in this depth. And just on the same theme, it, it defies genre categorization yeah, yeah at times it's come off as like a horror movie it had a horror movie absolutely yeah. feeling yeah. at times flat out comedy at times you know at, at times this artistic journey is it, and and towards the end i don't know what the hell it was so it was yeah. um i was yeah. very confused at that ending um 
and I didn't even realize what maybe you were supposed to realize about what she was doing and where she was. Like I, I, I struggled to figure it out. And I, I think I sort of had to have the ending explained to me at the very yeah. end. The question as to the, cause it, it's true. It did get a lot of attention as a movie that was like directly about cancel culture. And I'm of the opinion that that's, um, it's more of a smoke screen, but it's not, not about it. Right. There yeah. is a lot of effort put into having discussions about this. And the way that I think about it is like eyes wide shut isn't not about marital fidelity <laughs> and trust. Right. It's true. It is. I just think that there is a filmmaker who has who has given us layers upon layers. And I don't think in the end that is the the movie, the, the theme of the movie that he was trying to make. But yeah. um, but because it's about in some ways, maybe about power and uh, the, the, that it plays a central role. So I'll, um, I'll tell you why. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the story where I sort of settled on the idea that cancel culture is part of it, which is I read a review by Richard Brody in The New Yorker, and he's not a reviewer I tend to agree with a lot, and he hated it. So this is his, I think this is the tagline of his review. Tar is a regressive film that takes bitter aim at the so-called cancel culture and lampoons so-called identity politics. And it goes on how it mocks people of color. It doesn't show proper deference to victims of, of sexual abuse by powerful people. It takes Tara's side. And I, in some ways, well, that's no, it's a complicated film. No, no, no good film takes somebody's side. And, but I think I, I love the film, but he was right to get upset. I, there, there's a hundred, we could talk about the scene in Juilliard, for instance. They give her the best lines. They yeah, they make her the smarter, and smarter, but, but, and everyone else she confronts. Uh, the the, yeah. the kid, the scene in Juilliard is great because the kid is 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 a portrayal of a woke kid by somebody who just hates woke kids. But that's what. But, I, but I mean, I think it literally is that. It's like I mean, we have to get to this and talk about it in detail. But I don't think we're supposed to take that scene yeah. literally. Good, and good. if you're not supposed to take that scene literally, then it's not an all-out attack on cancel culture. It is a window into something about Lydia Tarr and how she thinks like, I mean, maybe we can talk about it now. I don't know. Like, let's wait, let's wait. Okay. We'll tease this. Okay. Yeah. Because I want to, even though I don't understand the movie as a whole, I feel like I have a sense of this scene, or at least I have a strong take. On I also should admit uh, at start, I understood nothing that they said about music, which was probably about 60% of the, of the film where they would argue. Well, okay. On, yeah, sorry. Uh, but on that, th yeah, on, on that, I think that they're creating this world in which um, we, as the as the audience, are supposed to feel like this stuff is all going over yeah. our heads. This is a, a world that's not us. Like the stuff isn't there it, with any thought that that uh, we're going to appreciate it. Um, for whatever the it's, smartness it's like a science fiction content. movie where they argue about the the, the the drive in the starship yeah and they say right. you know and, and they're having a big argument and, and you you feel you, yeah. you're, not, you're not supposed to follow this but you see what's <laughs> right going warp on. 10 is theoretically incapable yeah uh, yeah but yeah. we have a beryllium drive that should solve the problem <laughs> you know and, but I, I also think you're supposed to feel like oh like your cousin is the second violinist and they're letting you watch a, a rehearsal yeah. or something yeah. like that and yeah. then you just walk you, you get to go in there and it's like oh this is cool but you don't get what's going on yeah. but you you understand the way this like artistic community is connecting and working together and you feel that part even if you don't yeah. understand like the the terms that they're saying so the the beginning of the movie is before the credits even uh is lydia tar on the plane and there's somebody texting uh what time did she get up i wasn't with her 
Our girl is an early riser, isn't she? Haunted, ha, yeah, you mean she has a conscience? She says, maybe, and then one of them says, you still love her then. Now, huh. like, this is just the very beginning before yeah. we get, like, five minutes of end credits, yeah. like, leading yes. into the movie, and it's like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, one of the things that is interesting to talk about it is who you think those two people are maybe one you might assume is francesca her assistant but like who's the other one is it krista taylor you know like yeah, yeah. i, I think it's i think it's krista taylor so i i first of all i couldn't even tell at first that it was tar sleeping on the plane like it was it was far away enough that i was like okay that is her right yeah so we we never see who weirdly it's also like she it has a little live icon in the in the top left, like as if she were streaming the footage, um, mm, which I don't know if they just meant that to indicate that this is a live phone call, like a FaceTime or whatever. But it seemed like she was like going live on Instagram or something. And yeah, she's talking. And after watching it twice, I think that it must it must be telling us that um, Francesca is talking to Krista. Yeah. Still. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Then you have the end credits coming, which was apparently a controversial decision. But like, I think it's, I, I even thought I got this the first time through that it's just like an orchestra is not the conductor. Like an orchestra is every individual instrument. Like he wants to show all the people who are doing uh, the movie um, first and really give them their due. Because uh, yeah. this isn't about one person. It's about an ensemble right. that's kind you of what i like thought the- and i think he's even said it was something along those lines i thought he was yeah. also just saying look i'm not in a rush we're gonna we're yeah, gonna right. i'm gonna stretch your patience i'm gonna give you the credits then there's gonna be a 25 minute <laughs> interview and and there's kind of a, a courage to that you, if you feel you're in good hands totally. if you you respect that he's not rushing so yeah. i i think the same i mean i think that that's actually the those both things are true but is is there something else about time that he's trying to fuck with because it, that doesn't explain why in this movie like he would do it um necessarily yeah and and so i, I was tr- I, I i don't have a good theory about why this is the case but I mean, it does you seem could play like with the idea is... that the very first scene happened at the end and and that the whole thing that happened to tar was in fact uh you know inner inner yeah that's right yeah, yeah. In her head. Yeah. yeah. As she's uh, lying. Absolutely. Like, it's almost like asking you to at least consider that by putting that that uh, shot there, which would mean that could mean a lot of things in terms of what you thought. Uh, on that point of like, we're in good hands, but you got to be patient. I came across this. So um, Todd Field on the screenplay, like you can download the screenplay and it's like 94 pages. And he has this little paragraph at the beginning that says, based on this script's page count, it would be reasonable to assume that the total running time for Tar will be well under two hours. (laughs) However, this is not a reasonable film. There will be tempo changes and soundscapes that require more time than is represented on the page. And of course, a great deal of music performed on screen. All this to say, if you are mad enough to green light this film, be prepared for one whose necessary length represents these practical accommodations hmm. wow and so i think like the, your idea about time might be right like he's saying like i like this is timed this yeah. movie and the first scenes there's so many like are just really long scenes and, and, and tar, the end of the movie and tar herself in the interview with gopnik mentions time oh, uh, yeah. and 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 maybe maybe she there is the voice of of you know of the writer uh or yeah. he talks about the control over time things begin yeah. and end when she wants them to 
Yeah. I think uh, that's the central thing in the movie. We'll get yeah. to what, like huh. how I think it manifests, but I think, yeah, trying to control time is the central theme of the movie. Um, um, I'm sure this is going to come up throughout, but I wanted to just put like a, put, put the seed in our heads that um, I don't know if you read too much about the sound design, which has gotten a lot of praise, but I was reading an interview um, with Field and he was saying um, that every piece of sound in the film is a hundred percent intentional. And that when they were in the editing bay, they were in Scotland doing the editing. He said that we spent as much on, on the audio edits as we did on the visual edits. Um, And in fact, to record atmosphere sound, they, he and the editor would go out and get wherever they could get audio. And there's a ton, there's like industry magazines about audio where they describe exactly what he did to create the ambiances, like the music in the room. And I don't. I didn't even notice that there is a score to this movie, because it seems so silent. But it's mixed so low in a very Tarkovsky uh, way. Yeah. Um, it is mixed so low that if you don't have headphones or b- big enough speakers with bass in them, you might miss it. It just sounds like a bit like droning in the background, um, but it's there. Like it's it's just yeah. unconscious. Um, so so. Uh... Adam Gopnik is interviewing Lydia Tarr at the New Yorker Festival. Like, this is where, when I'm watching it, like, the second and third time, it's so over the top, Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) his intro of her. Like, she can't possibly, at her age, have done all these things. And (laughs) one of the things I came across is, like, she's too young to actually be... Bernstein's like student huh. like he yeah. was her mentor yeah. mentor and um and so like again you're already starting to think we're getting this from a somewhat maybe skewed perspective and you know Francesca mouthing first of all she's texting during this yeah. her mouthing it again makes me think like I, I don't know like I don't know what I think is going on but this isn't fully literal even though it seems to capture the smugness of an event like that so perfectly you know no i like that and at the end of the event she's approached by an adoring fan and they sort of flirt (laughs) but but just following on that theme the fans too adoring too flirty Everything just is, yeah. is, is yes, too nice. Exactly. It all has this, you know, Francisca's getting, you know, hugely pissed off when she watches this. But yeah. everything's going, is just too much. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of my freshman year at Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, the unnaturalness of this whole thing um, is, is what I thought was a genuine attempt at filmmaking a natural, like, biographical scene. And it was only a... a at the end of the movie where I'm like, okay, I think he's trying to make us uncomfortable about the status of her life. Like, what is this life? Like, it doesn't, it just doesn't seem that real. It, it does and it doesn't. Like, I believe that like the New Yorker Festival with Adam Gopnik interviewing <laughs> yeah. a figure like that would have that kind of insufferable, insufferable pomp, like pomposity. It's capturing it. It's just almost capturing it too well. You know, not yeah. fully naturalistically. Okay, there was a moment when she's talking. And so so a lot of, I think, what she is saying sounded rehearsed to me, which it could be that that's the case. If the if the question, the intro was, I think, written out. Yeah. Or I think we're supposed to believe that it was written out. Um, so maybe these, these answers are rehearsed. Um, 
but there was a little uncanny moment where she's talking about the 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 first uh, violin, the chair, uh, who was the conductor before conductors were conductors. But when he was keeping time with his stick, he stabbed himself in the foot and then ended up dying of gangrene. And everybody laughs. Yeah. Like, yeah. And and it just seemed that (laughs) threw me off kilter, too. I was like, what? Like, that wasn't funny. (laughs) It just seemed so odd. It seems surreal to me. Yeah, no, there's a lot of things like that. That I noticed that too this time. It's like, wait, why? Like, he seems like he was an asshole, but it's not funny that he died <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of gangrene. Uh, but there's other times where she says something, and it is how these like rich people would chuckle at something that's not that funny, but it's like right. an yeah, invitation totally. to laugh. Yeah, like the the time stuff is really interesting yeah. in this because. Uh, Adam Gopnik is saying, like, somebody said that the conductor was a human metronome, almost like inviting her to be like, oh, my God, no, it's nothing like that. And she's like, actually, there's a lot of truth uh, to that. And he says, but I'm sure it's much more. And he's like, "Ah," she's like, I don't know, kind of. But but no, this is it. Like, I control the time. And so there's a couple interesting things about this speech. Number one, she says... I control it like that's and that's the biggest thing that a conductor does is control the time. But two, like I give the illusion of spontaneity in terms of like me figuring out on stage. But every little bit of that has been uh, already decided in rehearsal. Yeah. And at one level, this is clearly like a. I think sh- this is how she runs her life. Like things that appear spontaneous are actually really well rehearsed before. And she likes to be in control of everything that she says, number one. And then number two, I think, like, if you want to give, like, what is this movie about? It is, she is losing control of time. Like, she, the the one thing that matters to her is that she wants to control time. But all of a sudden, she's getting older, the kids are getting younger, like, her rules aren't working. And she, um, you know, we can talk about, like, where we think, like, what we think literally Lydia Tarr is, but clearly... Clearly, like the world is slipping away from her as she's getting older. And that's a problem. And time and sound, because her mm-hmm. control of the sound and when the sound comes in and out is is super important. And sounds are intruding on her increasingly throughout the film. And so I think those do go hand in hand. And I, I should have known that maybe this is obvious to, to people. But I should have known this. But like this a few months ago, I learned this for the first time, that the reason that the conductor's role is so important is that orchestras keeping time um if two instruments are on the opposite side of the stage the sound takes time to travel so it's actually really hard to keep in sync but light obviously travels faster so having the conductor in the middle giving the visual timing is necessary for the whole orchestra to stay on time so so like being a metronome is very literally sort of the role uh, that she's Hmm. playing and so she talks about her right hand is the timekeeper and I yeah. forget what she says that her left hand does, but yeah. Shapes it. Yeah, shapes it. She also says, so So one of the things that is important to the plot is that she has now with the Berlin Symphony uh, done eight of Mahler's nine symphonies and she's saved the fifth for last. So this is going to be like her, you know, the 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 icing on the top of the cake the of crowning her career, jewel. The crowning jewel, yeah. Has, and, has her book um, Tar on Tar. Comes out. <laughs> How insufferable is that? So for all of us, we now have a framework for our, our book about our own work. 
Bloom on exactly. I just I just sounds like I just sounds dirty. Yeah, exactly. What I was thinking. And so they they do have a discussion about interpreting. Uh, these pieces, right? And so uh, the conductor has to make some uh, creative decisions because not everything is spelled out. And so they're talking about Bernstein's view about what this Fifth Symphony was about. And um, it seems as if later on in Mahler's life, he had had like a falling out with his wife and and Bernstein wanted to use that emotional material to interpret the symphony that was clearly written before that. And so she says... Bernstein really had this belief that you could reach back in time and give meaning to your previous actions based on your later actions. And she disagrees. She says, nope, Mahler, Mahler's fifth was born into young love. Yeah, young love, which will love. <laughs> be a recurring <laughs> That's theme. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, again, it's one of these things where the crowd's like, oh, yeah, clap, mm-hmm. clap, clap. And the Smith, yeah. the, <laughs> the Smith... Uh, harlot. Uh, <laughs> we'll bring that back she, too. She, she looked like she was married. She was wearing a ring too, so she's clearly. Uh... <laughs> so we go to uh, after the the Smith lesbian. We go to um, the conversation with the, the this very anti-Semitic uh, <laughs> conversation. Ellie, I mean, Ellie just not not like the. I guess the scene is anti-Semitic because it portrays Paul. I don't know if you felt this, but it portrays <laughs> us in a bad light in a way that we're you know self-conscious. Rich, about. rich Jew, um, aspire <laughs> towards brilliance, but plainly not brilliant himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, gay for whatever that that means. Oh, is he? I didn't. I didn't even catch that. Oh, I thought so. Well, Did I misunderstood the scene. I thought that there was. Um, she mentioned somebody's looking at him. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, but I I thought that might be a perspective like um somebody who wants to to oh. get him for his money, but that could have just been the oh. the money hungry Jew things to I think it mind. could be either. I okay, interpreted yeah. it the way you did, Paul, but I I don't think it's like a lot of things. Yeah. Nothing is fully confirmed. Right. It is kind of interesting this guy just wants to get a look at her score. Oh, he's and- on her nuts. Like it yeah. is it's it's hard to watch how much he's like just come on just a peek. Like, I tried to bribe your assistant, but she said no. And she yeah. says at the end of it, there's no glory for a robot, Elliot. Do your own thing. Yeah, she yeah. really she really sours on him with his private jets. And <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, that's what's so funny about it at the end. Like, he's doing, like, Mahler's Fifth Symphony <laughs> with her score, presumably, at the end. Like, you can see why not, like, I don't really believe this happens. <laughs> she would want to tackle him. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so does that make any sense that it would be him doing it? No, that, I, I thought that's just a, that we're we're into sort of a dream sequence here. Totally, the idea that, that yeah. uh, you know the striver so, would would end up right, and then it is relevant to what she said during that conversation. He she said something about him maybe like whatever conducting, and he said, "I know my place. Money can't always buy you everything." And then she looks and she goes, "You don't believe that." So yeah. maybe in her mind, like he did, he, he did buy in. her position. Yeah. yeah. All right, now's the Julia scene. All right, let's talk Max, about this. With the twitching, this is, the twitching leg. Yeah, oh, the, yeah. The, uh, too fast, you know, for yeah. her. Like she didn't. <laughs> the, it was going at a speed she can't handle. So, like, first of all, this is shot in a single take, but not in a showy way at all. I, like, I hadn't noticed definitely, it. That's... I only I didn't notice it, but I only could appreciate it afterwards when I was reading about them having to capture the sound, and they were like, it was really tricky because we because they were doing a three sixty of the whole room in this continuous take. 
they couldn't have microphones placed all throughout. So they, they had to like be creative. Oh, yeah. They had like attach them to the camera and like walk around. I think yeah. that's all right. I, I don't know. We can go through some of the things, but like, I'll just say as a way of starting the conversation, I don't think you can take this scene literally at all. Even Like, I don't think that's a supportable position, even though almost everybody did when this movie came out. But there's certain things that are said by Max, the BIPOC transgender person, person that, that I just don't, I, I just don't buy that a Juilliard student would say. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and when so, he leaves, he yeah. says, you're a fucking bitch. Yeah. Which, which makes him this misogynist villain and it's like the worst thing anyway. And he wouldn't say that. That's just, that's, yeah. Yeah. again, that, that's um, a fantasy of now that you demolished the person, all they're left with is their true evil self yeah. making yeah. for themselves. Uh, it's like Barry Weiss's fantasy of <laughs> <laughs> like what would happen at a Juilliard master class. <laughs> But, like, he literally says, honestly, as a BIPOC pangender person, Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. And she's like, what do you mean? And he said, like, didn't he sire, like, 20 children? Like, nobody talks yeah. Who says like this. sire? Who says yeah, sire? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. The question about what he's, what Field is trying to say with the scene is uh, an interesting one, but it it is clear that that this dialogue is, I think, the fantasy of someone who's looking to own like a one of these like woke yeah. kids, and that is what you would write if you had a caricature of the woke kid in your mind. And I think I might be wrong, but I I do not I do not think that there could be. You couldn't dedicate your life to music and get to Juilliard, and not uh, like Bach is just the the like most important composer <laughs> ever. Yeah. Like it, so it made it extra caricature that somebody would. And, and it wasn't just Bach, right? Like he no, was yeah. saying, like I'm not into the dead white cis cis, cis yeah. composers. It's like yeah. I I just don't buy that. That's what would be happening at at Juilliard. What I do buy is that that's what a a woman or man of, of like roughly our age might think is going on there and might and it's really funny because we're all unanimous on this but it's not filmed in a way that makes you think this is in any way surreal or we're yeah. not supposed we're we're not supposed to take it literally and you look at the reviews of when this first came out and everybody just took it at face value. And, and like now I see it and I just like that doesn't even seem remotely plausible to me, given how smart the rest of the movie is. I agree. There's too much subtlety in the rest of the movie to think that this could be his attempt yeah. at actually taking down this view. But it's yeah. still the question still remains. Yeah. Why this then? And put like, me down as 90 percent convinced and mainly because they don't give us any clue. That we're seeing the world through her eyes, and yeah, and why is this particular scene important for her? For her, I mean, like, I mean arguably, up to now, the whole movie has been has been, and 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 I see it, one, yeah. uh, not a fantasy scene, but the world seen from somebody who wants to see the world in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my daughter, when we saw this, her idea was that. Like, this is her memory of these huh. events. Like, that's mm -hmm. how she remembers the the New Yorker Festival. That's how she remembers the mm -hmm. scene at Juilliard. You know, like, after she's already gotten into trouble. She remembers that guy as just the most, the, the, the caricature of a woke Gen Z 
person and she remembers her as saying eminently reasonable right. uh like super smart things thing. in response and him being you know completely unwilling to even consider that maybe beethoven oh. had some like good music even if he was a, this, a cis white male i like this because it is a nice um contrast with what she thinks of as the ultimate sin against her which was the heavily edited version that got leaked online which is also ridiculous right so this is her her mind may have edited her memory edited what happened yeah just in the same disingenuous way <laughs> yeah. that the footage was yeah. edited yeah, yeah. As, as like a single take in, in contrast with the footage, which is just these ridiculous yeah. edits, like, right. you know, like yeah. not even trying to make it seem <laughs> right. like they, they you make are sense. such a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in this, it's like a single long, beautiful take yeah, of her right. eloquence and that guy's unreasonableness. Yeah, it helps explain That's, if a lot of this is her memory of these events, it helps explain why she's speaking as if they were line deliveries. Because Kate Blanchett yeah. is not, you know, she's a very good. She's, a, she's one of my favorite actresses, actually, ever. Um, and uh, and I think she's giving a performance that is like, and then I said this awesome thing. Yeah, I think that's right. What do you think of Kate Blanchett, uh, Paul? I'm trying to remember. I, I, I thought she was wonderful in this. What else has she done? I, I, I was looking before and I'm just blanking. Carol is what you won. Uh, Blue yeah. Jasmine, the Woody Allen movie. If you're even allowed to admit that you've seen a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> anymore i actually haven't seen blue jasmine but uh, i saw blue jasmine hannah she was in hannah talented mr mm. ripley oh um, of course yeah most importantly galadriel in lord of the rings she's the the elfin queen no she's like considered one of like the all-time yes. you know like actresses of this generation oh, yeah. i honestly was not a huge fan and went into this movie prepared to think that i was too actory and i was prepared not to like it i, I had a kind of pissy attitude when i went when i first saw this movie and like she immediately went won me over it's like such a good performance and it and the movie doesn't work at all if it's not a uh if it's not that good a performance like a lot of this is a sort of kubrickian thing you two were mentioning before which is yeah. i hadn't thought to connect it to stanley kubrick's movies like but yeah. but but there's similar the sort of similar stylized delivery yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah um there's a couple of things in the juilliard scene that i think were were important from the filmmaker to us and it's uh in in her soliloquy she says it's always the question that involves the listener and never the answer it's it's very much like telling us how to interpret art and she's uh i think she's saying something about how to how to interpret the film maybe and but she also says in this super dramatic way you must stand before the public and god and obliterate yourself yeah i have you know? that down too yeah, yeah. which is yeah. just it's a great but it's also like is that it, i think she has a savior complex of some sort you know? and, and what she says about bach is humility in bach he's not pretending he's certain about anything again yeah. like he's not a 18 year old kid who figured out like like whose music is worth listening to yeah when but then that other thing i think is deeper it says something more about lydia like you must sublimate yourself yeah. obliterate yourself i don't know i don't know what that's telling it's it's definitely important though yeah. the, I feel the like. one line which fell flat and i don't know whether just badly written but it really fell flat is she describes herself as a u-haul lesbian yeah, yeah. And that it's such a strange. For it, it, she plays herself as so European and so stylized, yeah. and that's such an American right. phrase. Well, you know, well we, we see where she's from. We see like, where she's from. She's, but, but that yeah, I wasn't Linda familiar Tarr. with that uh, term. 
I think it's the joke is that they move in after yeah. one date. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> what does a lesbian bring to a second date? The U-Haul. The U-Haul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One scene I want to talk about because it's in sharp contrast to a later scene. Uh, she's in the hotel and Francesca comes in and is like, hey, you want to go to dinner? Um, and she says, no, I'm just going to work on this. Uh, don't you have friends at New Haven? No. She, and, and Francesca's kind of hanging around wanting to go out with Lydia. This will be in sharp contrast to <laughs> our girl, Olga, later oh, in the yeah. movie right. when she will ask her to go to dinner and yeah. Olga is like, no, jet lag. And then we see her going out. But you, so, so I think like this is like a, a very pointed uh, way of showing that she's losing her grip on yeah. On, on people um yeah and then also francesca gives her a book a mysterious book and then on the plane she's gonna see what the book is it comes from the front desk they don't know who it's from so yeah what do you think about this book i meant to look up that like what was the book it was yeah it was, I, it, it was a book about a similar theme to the, to the movie i forget it was a discussion of it well it's called challenge yeah. I don't, do we know like we do. more details about we it? Do. I didn't do. know. And then it's a, it's a real book. there was like a maze on it that was handwritten. Yeah. We're in, that's a, a maze that we see again. Um, it is? A couple times. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a couple times where we see like a little labyrinth. Uh, one is in, oh, oh, I'm starting to make sense of this. Okay. So I missed the, co- I missed the maze I on the cover of the book. I know. Yeah. So one time when she is in, um, oh, fuck. Okay. She goes into um, Petra's room. So this is the, the daughter of her, of her wife. And Petra has been playing and the, there's a bunch of like stuffed animals like centered around like a little conducting baton that's a pencil. And then she looks over to see some of her other stuff and made out of Play-Doh is the little labyrinth in red huh. and blue Play-Doh. Wow. And then when she goes to um, uh, Francesca's apartment after she's moved out, she's looking through the pile of papers and she sees that same labyrinth drawn in red and blue is when she sees the rat on rat. So I think Francesca has been in her apartment. I think Francesca may have given her the book even. Or it's Krista. Or it's Krista. I mean, Fr- Francesca yeah, gives yeah. the book, but you're made but to believe that it be came from Krista. outside. Francesca yeah. doesn't seem like she's, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Krista's Krista. been in Krista's the house. Been in Krista's been in the house. Because like haunting that house. Yeah. Like like literally with Petra, she's like yeah. in the closet. Yes. At least that's how it's sort of shot. And yeah. and the book, by the way, Challenge, was inspired by the author's, a female author's love affair of a woman who threatens suicide after a separation. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, okay. This yeah. is a small tidbit, by the way. I was very touched by Petra asking uh, the adults to, to hold her foot. Yeah. It was such a kid thing yeah. to do. Such a kid, you know, obsessive, little twitchy thing for physical contact. Yeah. It was very touching. When I was reading about William Blake, I was reading about how he was fascinated with the symbolism of the foot. And there was some deep symbolism uh, about the foot being like grounded in reality. So like I couldn't help but think that 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 is the the child is grounding her in in a way that yeah. in the end she gets the child taken away from her yeah. and she's no longer has that grounding it's the one non-transactional relationship yeah. in her life as, yeah. um yeah uh 
Well, she so she goes home and uh, clearly she's taken the pills of her she's wife. She's totally stealing Wheeler. the pills. She's just stealing her, I guess, anti-anxiety pills. Yes, yeah, yeah. They're, they're beta blockers. I looked them up. <laughs> yeah, uh, and she almost and, and and the wife Sharon is freaking out. She seems somewhat remorseful. Pretends to like find one. Yeah, in, she's like, "Is this the right one?" You yeah. know, like that's just something like a pill stealer. You sound like you speak from experience. Yeah, yeah, we've been on both sides. Of this. Uh, and Sharon, who has a problem with her heart. Yeah, that's right. right. Oh, that's, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. horrible. And uh, she also says that uh, Petra, their daughter, is getting kind of bullied at school by the uh, German racist <laughs> by the by the uber woman inch yeah. <laughs> by this point i think we've already seen that that uh francesca said krista sent an email and this one seemed desperate yes um yeah, yeah. right it's fr- yeah that whole thing is strange because like if we're meant to think that she's texting krista during a lot of these scenes like it seems a lot more lighthearted. they seem a lot more connected and uh so something's not tracking yeah. there with her being Krista. Yeah. Um, uh, so a great scene takes Petra in the car. That's a really nice scene. That's the first time you've seen Lydia be like a nice human person getting her to sing that yeah. song. And then as she drops her off, asks to point out Johanna, the bully. And uh, this is a funny scene. She, she refers to, she just goes up to the girl, says, I'm uh, Petra's father. Yes. <laughs> and uh, says, like, if you touch her again, I will get you. And don't tell any grownups because I'm a grown-up and they'll believe me. And then says, believe me. God watches us all. <laughs> God watches <Yeah>. us all. <laughs> Johanna is just terrible. Like, we're going to yeah. have to pick up the pace for, for Yeah, Paul. we really do. This has all been good, but we, <laughs> Paul needs to go. Don't blame me. so we start to get the intrusion of noises throughout yes right one of the things that's happening to her and and uh uh, field has um explicitly said as much that that this is a woman suffering from misophonia so so noises start bothering her like mundane noises even the humming of the refrigerator will wake her up they clearly are are distressing to her the the, uh, sebastian um, in her orchestra, clicking his pen really bothers her. She's also he also said in an interview that she is bothered by movements, so that's why the kid's knee moving up and down um, was bothering um, him. And then she starts hearing things that we're not. I don't know if we're, they're real or not. I, yeah. Importantly, as she's jogging, we hear the sounds of like what appears to be somebody being murdered. Yeah, screaming. Anyway, yeah. did you did you happen to catch that these screams are actually the Blair Witch Project? What do you what? mean? So the audio of the woman screaming is just yeah. a direct rip from the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I take these things as this reminder of what she did to Krista. Um, yeah. like, it's, it's a little telltale hearty. It's exactly. It's yeah. exactly telltale hearty. And, you know, sometimes it's just the metronome in the, cl- in the cabinet, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's a, w- a woman's scream, like when she really feels like this is something, I don't know. Like, I, 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 again, I don't know what to interpret it, but it's clearly her being haunted by what she did to Krista Taylor. 
you get now like the movie kind of settles down uh, for a bit and you just get like rehearsals and figuring out the internal politics of the orchestra. There's interesting stuff with Andres, the ex-conductor. It's just like all this stuff is really well done and you really buy it. That's what's so hard about seeing this movie as a Lynchian like uh, fever dream or something like that is this stuff all seems so real and kind of naturalistic. There's yeah, a scene where Andres hands her a blurb and he means it to be yeah. of great significance. Where he says, oh, thanks. I'm not sure there's enough time to get it into the book. And plainly you see yeah. like she doesn't think he's high status enough. Yeah. And it did get, it did get that little sense for what Tamler was talking about before. This is a man whose, whose time is passed yeah. yep. and she sees herself maybe getting there. Um, at least mm-hmm. by by the end. Was was it um, Andres again who makes the parallel mm-hmm. between the sexual accusations and the denazification? Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So the movie's the movie's careful. So Tar Tar says, "Oh, you're making that analogy. It's an offensive analogy. It's an extreme analogy." But yeah. the movie yeah. gets it out there. Yeah. No, that's totally true. And in fact, mm-hmm. the the speech that she gave in the Juilliard classroom, um, y- you would think that she is a bit more on board with some of the stuff that yeah. um, that he says, because at some point when when he brings up Schopenhauer, so he says Schopenhauer believed that that geniuses would also be very bothered, very sensitive to noises, and she says, "Well, isn't didn't he throw a, a woman down the stairs?" And he's like, yeah, but that has nothing to do with his actual work. You know? yeah. And she's a little taken aback, but you could just see, well, this is the person maybe who has shaped yeah. her views on this stuff. To be, it's a slippery slope. To be accused, yeah. right to, that leads right to Andres and yeah. Nazis. Yeah. To be accused yeah. is the same as being guilty, he tells us. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, you know, and I don't know who we're supposed to be sympathetic. Honestly, I'm not sure what, what the director is he's not making that guy villainous enough for me to think that he's being morally yeah. abhorrent to say it. Um, and, and Brody, by the way, was furious at the scene. So he, and he, he describes yeah. the scene without actually mentioning that Tar herself makes the point, but he says it's grotesque that the movie is oh, making God. a parallel between the, the people being accused of being oh, Nazis. God, and that's movies. so horrible. What happened to him? He used to be like a serious like film critic. That's <laughs> just ridiculous. That's just not getting it. Like whatever's going on, it's not, we're supposed to, oh yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> right. You know, like that's so <laughs> clearly not what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such uh, a bad analogy that it seems to make the opposite case. Yeah. Exactly. exactly 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 like you could think it's if anything you might think it was like too woke because it's like caricaturing this uh yeah. this way of thinking in the same um, way that he caricatured the the like the zoomer who is like pangender yeah. right yeah. he's he's presenting both sides in unflattering yeah. way again very kubrick like yeah. you, you were wondering who to sympathize with no one no one like yeah. we're all like just flawed hypocrites yeah but I have particular dislike towards Olga because of, because of her, her the cruelty of youth. She just just I she know. just takes and well, takes. She represents what Lydia Tarr used to feel like she had some sway with, and now what like it's not happening anymore. Yeah. Like Olga just plays her like yeah. a cello, yeah. and literally doesn't give her any more than what it takes for her to get what she wants, and Lydia cannot crack through in the way that you clearly see she could have she could with Francesca up to a point and clearly probably has in the past but it's over now and Olga is a great representation of that I think yeah she sees Olga out of the corner of her eye during her book reading like flirting with some guy um, Mm -hmm. in the background and this obviously bothers her 
And and Olga, I mean, I think Olga knows exactly what she's doing. Like she probably is aware of the reputation and yeah. she's just playing it right. Yeah. yeah. And then on the way back to the airport, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Tara is sitting there and trying to make conversation with Olga. And Olga's like staring at her phone or something. Yeah. yeah. Pur- purposefully. Yeah. Rapidly. Purposefully yeah. yeah. Just like, again, like the way that only young people can, they can just like type like at a mile a minute, never make any mistakes. And yeah. like, you can't like reach them. Yeah. I-, I think that like, if I had to say the number one theme, it is like, you are getting older. I feel this sometimes. And like, you can't reach this generation. You can't understand them. You can't connect with them in the way that you used to. And that's a scary ass thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's a moment where you realize you have been categorized in a different category. Like you've been, yeah. you, you are no, no, no longer just like a stretch away from, from reaching these people. You're, you're just an old person yeah. to them. Yeah. There is this interesting scene of them picking the Deutsch gramophone cover and Lydia Tarr says, could we maybe try something less considered? And then it cuts to Francesca and she just has this look on her face like, you are the most considered person that like has ever walked this earth. But I do think that is like she, she wants full control over her persona. Yeah. That's the thing that's yeah slipping away. So, yeah, where should we go now? Well, so let's, should we talk about her, her following or t- taking Olga? She has uh, taken steps so that Olga will not only get accepted to the orchestra, but will be the soloist for Elgar's cello concerto, which is the companion piece to Mahler's fifth. And in doing so, just kind of stepped over the reigning first celloist and uh, and she's masterful at at these machinations she really knows every step that she needs to get olga to be in this position right so and everybody can see although so so richard brody didn't so he said that it was and and I, i saw his point when he said it which is it was unrealistic the orchestra cheering on letting her get away with this and I think you get more purchase if you assume, again, this is her way of seeing it. There are exactly that. Like, Richard Brody would be wrong to say that the orchestra was fully on board with it uh, every step of the way. Uh, every step of the way, everyone's very concerned, and you can get the sense Sharon's yeah. like, oh, God, we're doing this again. And But what we get in the movie is that she's actually the right person to do yeah. this. And like you said, Paul, they're actually happy for her when she cheers. Yeah. Like right. even the celloist, the first celloist that got walked over is like kind of yeah. smiling yeah. and like happy. At least from, I got the sense from their facial expressions when she's making these moves that nobody is deceived into thinking that she's yeah. she's being like, she's not being as subtle as she thinks. And um, she comes across as a bit of a tyrant. People seem afraid. Yeah. And, and when Sebastian... The one crack in this is when Sebastian actually says, don't you, we all see what you're like, this is completely obvious. And she's like, what? And he's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that because yeah. she has so much control yeah. over his And then she says, well, yeah. certainly you couldn't consider, consider continuing to work with me if you had that kind of attitude. Oh, he's such a bully. So manipulative. So, such yeah. a bully. Yeah. She's a bully. She's a gaslighter. She's, yeah. uh, she does all the things. We haven't even said that like she blacklisted Krista Taylor, yeah. made it so that she could not get an appointment at any yeah. major orchestra, like clearly went out of her way to email people. It was vindictive yeah. Yeah. what she did to 
to Krista Taylor. And so, like, whatever you think about the Juilliard scene or whatever, at no point could you take her side when it comes to, to that. Yeah. She's yeah. clearly abusing her power. She's she's trying to cover her tracks by having, you know, st- stealing Krista's, uh, Francesca's laptop and, and deleting the emails. Um, well, not deleting them, actually. We never see that. We see, her dele- we see her delete the ones on her. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't yeah. delete them and she right. actually Francisca gets the laptop back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think she knows probably yeah. she would be, it would be pretty obvious. Yeah. And deleting emails doesn't get you very situations like that. I don't think. It was a little it's like, cute. Well, that- it's not in her all mail, so I guess we'll <laughs> just uh, look somewhere else. <laughs> like yelling, empty the trash. <laughs> yeah. Once you empty the trash, it's well, we should talk about the Olga scene, the yeah. stalker scene. Yeah. 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 Like, so she drives Olga home after a rehearsal. She's now having rehearsals at her little extra Berlin uh, studio. Yeah. It's, it seems apartment. like it's her apartment that she didn't want to give up yes. when she got married. You know, yeah. such a man. She is such a stereotypical man throughout this whole yeah. film. It's yeah. just so much interesting, more interesting that it's Kate Blanchett yeah. playing it. There's so much stuff that goes on in this place that we haven't we haven't talked about. Yeah. We probably don't have time, but like the stuff with the neighbor and uh, oh yeah, I think yeah. that's played for that's... comedy. Like there's a scene, the, the, <laughs> the neighbor goes, "We're selling our apartment. We noticed you played this music." And they go, "Oh yes, like as thank you, thank you so much." And then they say, "Could you please not play it when we have people coming by?" Yes, yeah. but, but what's but, not played uh, yeah. for comedy is the old lady dying oh. and her daughter oh, yeah. being yeah. institutionalized. No, no, no. Like, yeah, yeah, and like the scene where <clears throat> she gets woken up out of a f- freaky dream of yeah. her being in the Amazon and and then having to help this woman take her naked mother who has uh, is lying in her own feces, and, yeah. and it's like really like yeah. I, I that was Mulholland Drivey, like just the horror of yeah. that scene. Like, what am I going into? The the overpowering smell. Yeah, confronting both the physical death and the loss of sanity, right, all at yeah. once. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, right. And your I think that brain is dying. Her. Your body yeah. is dying. Yeah. Maybe it's a movie. And we learned about that aging. the sister. Yeah, maybe. I think so. Like I do think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting is that that neighbor still gave her the uh, idea for her new piece, right? It's like <laughs> the, the woman's like yeah. little bell um, gives her the idea of the piece, which then Olga, you yeah. know, all her young, cruel talent and beauty just like <laughs> figures out how to improve it. Yeah, she's just think B minor. Uh, okay. That's an Amadeus. Um, it's very Amadeus. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So so after rehearsal, uh, um, Tar drops off Olga at presumably the apartment building in which she lives, but realizes that she's left a little stuffed animal. T- you know, talk about infantilizing. <laughs> um, she leaves uh, it in the car. So she, you can tell that Tar is happy that she left something. She's like, oh, I get to let go, go see her. So George Costanza. And it just. <laughs> yeah but then it just turns into kind of a, a horror scene yeah. um yeah where very it's very weird olga is like almost very girly in this and she gets out of the car and she's like so giddy and happy and and then she notices that she's left the bear her little teddy bear and she calls olga and then we cut to her perspective and there's nobody there so yeah. it's like she vanishes yeah and so I think that's already like a little signal, like something's off, something's yeah. fucked up. And yeah. then when she goes in, it's like stalker. Like it's it's so stalker that it has to be consciously stalker. The drips of water, um, yeah. like sound like they're out of the movie stalker. 
Uh, there's a black dog. I mean, it turns into a labyrinth. It, yeah. And it's it's an apartment Indeed. building that nobody yeah. seems to live in. Um, she's now underground, and she starts running from this dog. Runs up the stairs. And there was like some. There's someone singing. Singing. Like a girl somebody singing. And and she walks into the basement. It's like so horror movie at yeah. that point. Like don't go into this <laughs> random basement in this abandoned courtyard where there are like mat old mattresses like yeah. that. It's like no, I got to go down into this basement. Yeah. And then she runs right. out and falls, cracks her head. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and that just that sound of the smack like yeah. is jarring. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, like that's how that scene. And I feel that's a real breaking point in the, in the movie yeah yeah perhaps right before i mean yeah i mean right definitely before, yeah. this apartment is not yeah. yeah we're now we're now kind of out of touch with reality i i bet like you remember like fairly early on in the movie is the girl screaming as she's yeah. uh, running in the woods it's not totally accurate to say like there's a dividing line really at any point no that's what movie. i was saying at the beginning it's like a smooth yeah. transition i just what i was trying to say is that at this point it's certain like it's yeah. just become certain and yet with still some like the scene that follows it that's what's so weird about yeah. this movie is now you have like a like <clears throat> a normal scene of uh, if she fell and now her wife's taking care of her and you know I, I'd say this is like a turning point in the movie not necessarily it starts to get a be dreamlike from this point whereas it was real, realistic before but in terms of like the pace of the movie like I'm looking at my notes right now and things are just get really jumbled and things just start happening really fast as yeah. Lydia Tarr's life starts to unravel at like every level yeah from then on in everything that happens is bad to her yeah right and it does feel like all of a sudden a summary of all the bad things that happened to her. Like mm -hmm. it's unclear to me how much time, it, like time, uh, it's interesting actually. Time stops, like it's so slow and patient and you almost feel like you're living the first part of the movie in real time. Not really, but but then all of a sudden it's it's a compressed timeline. And I don't, I can't honestly say how long I think, uh, how much time is in between her getting ousted and her ending up where she ends up. like I. So one thing I don't think we mentioned is that the Krista Taylor story gets reported to her, not just by Francesca. People are starting to talk about a her involvement with Krista Taylor. Soon after that, uh, she gets called in by... At this point, she has like this like succession level PR team, you know, uh, as the YouTube video of the Juilliard thing is released, just that hack job. And she has like six people around a table telling her one, I think, kind of Asian woman says the, the major trades aren't picking up on it. Let's uh, leave it alone. See what happens. But meanwhile, she has to go do a deposition. Yeah. Uh, in right. New York. That. Is that the accordion like uh, group like the that that she's a part of the funders of the of the fellowship that Krista was part of and that Francesca is? Is, is that it? like the board of oh, board of directors? Know. I didn't think so because they're in Berlin, right? Yeah, it's not because I think that the guy says you, we're having an immediate uh, we're having a meeting on whatever day, yeah. um, and she's like, "Oh, I can't be there because I got to go to New York." Yeah. And, oh, and, and Francesca, like, again, this is like everything is just happening. Like Francesca yeah. just immediately resigns once yeah. she's not made the assistant to replace Sebastian. It was like all like I got all I had to eat all this shit for nothing. You know, yeah. Francesca. Now she seems like she's going to get a little payback by letting people know what happened. Yeah. There's a bunch of other things like 
the uh, Petra get, has a, I guess, a horrible dream, and it seems like there's somebody in her closet, and she calls for Lydia. You know, this is all very, uh, I, I, you know, you can interpret it in a lot of different ways. Her score goes missing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The score for the Mahler's for the fifth. fifth. Yeah. 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 She has no idea who um, has been in there. So, so, so she goes to New York to promote her book and and attend the deposition at the same time, right? Yeah. And, and that's and when get the protesters some time are, with Olga. And get some time with Olga. And that's when the protesters are all out there. And that's when she's at the hotel and tries to get Olga to go out and Olga shoots her down. But then she sees her. Um, yeah. I okay. go bed, jet lag. <laughs> and, and, bed. and again, <laughs> again, it's too perfect a scene of humiliation to be realistic. That she would yeah. just happen to leave her room to get some ice or something. And there would yeah. be Olga waiting, going into the elevator, all dressed up and ready to go out. I also She's, thought this time around, like, the protest is a little over the top. You know? Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, there's, like, 30 angry marchers, like, outside. Like, running by the car, like, yeah. it's, like, yeah. like in Ali. <laughs> like, when, when Ali goes to Africa and, like, the little yeah. kids are running. <laughs> yeah, they're, like, holding up signs. Uh, yeah, it all really happens uh, uh, super fast. Um, and then... She's somehow back in Staten Island at her childhood. Wait. Uh, no, well, before that, wait, yeah, a fast. few things happen. Uh, so her, uh, Sharon leaves her, says. Sharon leaves her. Yeah. Sharon leaves her. She can't see Petra. Um, she, she gets removed from the orchestra before yes. that. She tackles, yeah, yeah right. the going back to yeah, Staten Island right. doesn't yeah, happen yeah, for sorry, a while. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. We don't yeah. see her getting fired or demoted, do we? Uh, I think things happen very quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. She really gets rejected, is. can't see yeah. Petra, it's and then I think we're at the Elliot Elliot Kaplan scene. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> which is just that that is where it hit the height of surreal to me. It's at this point in the movie where I'm like, wait, yeah. no, okay, like this didn't really happen, right? While I was watching that, I was wondering, is this a dream sequence? Is this some yeah. sort of fantasy? Yeah. yeah. So first, Elliot tells her that she's no longer going to be working with the foundation that he runs. And then... And he says, this is the last time you'll see me. This yeah. is the last time. Yeah. But but it is not. Some, some, <laughs> turns some, out. some great line. Like, I forget what it is, but so you have to kiss up to somebody else. What, what was it again? I don't yeah, have she, uh, she says something very cold to him. You'll have yeah. to try to crawl yeah. your way to, yeah. the, some, to the podium somebody, yeah, yeah. Use on somebody else's. And then th there's the scene, which it's very hard to take literally. I, both this yeah. and the one that you said you kind of thought was funny of her, like playing the accordion yeah. in yeah. her house, which actually I just made the, just had the thought accordion was also the name of the foundation. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, she, yeah, like it's just too crazy at this point, you know. Um, there's also the weird thing that at, at her reading in New York, uh, we see somebody texting somebody else. Like, fuck me if she like. Is it Olga now texting with Krista? Is it uh, or Olga texting with Francesca? But yeah. they had no relationship. Yeah. No, you know? I know. And and if anything, you would think it's antagonistic. Yeah. Uh, like she seemed. Francesca was really, really salty about like. Uh, you know, any attention that that Tar was giving yeah. to, to these other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. Olga was perfectly portrayed as an attractive love object. Francesca's portrayed as a nagging, unattractive person that, that Tar is sick of. Yeah. yeah. She could she tell she kind of so, lost so her annoying. shot at yeah, it. She's really, yeah. 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 <laughs> she she might have had that luster at the beginning of their relationship. And now she's fallen into this role of like, 
naggy assistant. In, in every love, we begin as Olga and end up as Randall. <laughs> <laughs> so she she has so she assaults Kaplan, just yeah. just wails on him, and and we've seen her before box. She's she yeah, right. Fight. She's very physically aggressive. Those scenes where she where they cut to her boxing or jarring, like it's very quiet, and then all of a sudden just boom, like you hear her slamming that bag. Yeah, yeah. so we know she can kick yeah. some ass. She tackles Elliot. Uh, who is just like, I guess he's thinking, I guess maybe there is glory in being a robot. He's literally using her score, you think, to conduct. Yeah. Yeah. Her yeah. Mahler's fifth. She not only tackles him, but then she starts conducting. Like she starts <laughs> get, trying to get people to- Come on, it. come on, yeah. That's right, yeah, nobody yeah, knows what yeah. to do. They're looking at each other. <laughs> and then they kind of put, like dutifully put down their in- instruments and Elliot gets up and yeah, she starts wailing on him again, curb stomping him. Yeah, I mean, this is the height of anti-Semitism, really. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, <laughs> you saying curb stomping reminded me. D- Dave just was like applauding during this scene. <laughs> he just got up in the middle of the theater. Like, Whip that Jew's ass. Yeah. No. So I don't even know anymore whether to say no. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just go along with your <laughs> accusations. It's just when, when they put together the, the video of the, just quotes from you, you're going to look very right. bad. <laughs> like the way I took it, then she has now a kind of off brand PR firm trying to yeah. rebuild her. Once she's done that, she's clearly like a yeah. bit of a pariah and they can't get like somebody good to work on her case. And yeah, it's like whoever got Paul Rubens back into the industry, you know, like slowly but surely. Like, Herm, you know. yeah, yeah, exactly. We got it. We, we People will forget eventually. <laughs> so she's she's back in New York and taking a cab to her childhood home. I think that was the next scene. And there's something about her paying for the cab and how that all works. I think just to, to show the difference between the life she had had and the life she's having now. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. We she there, she comes in. There's an out of tune piano that she plays on. She's then upstairs, I guess, in her childhood room, and I someone I guess is her brother. Yeah, yeah. Says, it's her brother. Uh, oh, hey, Linda. Yeah. Without any real warmth, uh, <laughs> right? Like or surprise or anything really. Yeah, um, yeah. Like a uh, the kind of um, cold coldness that shows that. He's not even angry at her. He's they've written her out of this, yeah. like because clearly she's written them out of the life. Um, this, but but her room is intact. So like clearly the mother probably still is holding on to something. Like the the room has remained with all of her trophies and all of the like Leonard Bernstein VCR tapes that that she goes back to, to look at. That that her name is actually Linda Tar with two R's um, mm-hmm. says something about like this. The facade that she's she's been trying to put on. Like she that. has curated her image. Yeah. Um, I felt a less less sympathetic. I have to admit, knowing that she actually had rejected her roots that badly. Because I, the first time I saw this, it, I I just wouldn't have guessed that she was actually just some Linda from Staten Island. Yeah, that's part of the performance. You know, like every part of her life is presented in a way that shows she's kind of a genius and yeah. um and at least the way it's being presented to us which i honestly think might be through her mind and yeah you can like maybe there is something about coming from a more working class kind of environment where you feel even more need to present yourself in a way 
to be a bit more sympathetic to her, but you can see from just the, the amount of like medals and trophies in her room that she was clearly talented from a young age. And maybe she felt like she never belonged in wherever she grew up. But it is one of these, maybe you've known people like this, you meet them and you realize where they're from and you realize that they've worked hard to remove any trace of the working class accent yeah, <laughs> that exactly. they might have. Um, and, you know, she talks like a vaguely foreign yeah. Like American, who's had lots of, of experience in, in well, the fact countries. that she put the accent over the, <laughs> the accent is so affected. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then she's going back, and I don't know if she's having a real moment of of insight about her own life at all. But one thing I did notice is that she puts on one of her medals, and she like leaves it on. You mm-hmm. know, like as she's there, it's like she's trying to embrace maybe a time in her life when the future was bright and hope like it was all ahead of her and not behind her, which goes along with the themes that Tamler was pointing to about aging and, and maybe even aging out. Like there was a, there was a moment where the, the world was all a world of possibility for her. She's mm-hmm. big fish in a small pond, I'm sure in Staten Island. When I, when right. I originally saw the scene, I didn't know what to make of it. It was so tonally and stylistically different from the rest of the movie. It's like a different movie. Yeah. You know, the, the, the brother, the sort of working class brother, sort of central casting working class guy. Hey, yeah, you know. you're right. It's from another movie. It's like all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm like a Charlie Kaufman movie or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, right before when she's meeting with the off-brand uh, PR firm, uh, the guy says, what we're after is less, not more. We need to rebuild this from the ground up. That means we need a new story. And like you guys are saying, the next scene is like almost a new story. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And yeah. one and one other significant part of the scene, uh, besides what you guys have mentioned, is that she watches an old VHS of Leonard right. Bernstein. Yeah. And uh, actually, tear. I think she's wearing the medal at this point, and she tears yeah. up. He's saying about how music can make you feel, uh, even if you don't understand it. It can bring out emotions that we don't have words for. Yeah. 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 It's great. Um, I was struggling to know whether or not I was really supposed to feel like she was reconnecting with the true meaning of music here because I got that that's like what we were being shown where she's, she goes back to, to her room and finds the love for music, but I didn't feel it emotionally. I didn't feel like she, there was anything in her that, that was like, oh, this is actually what it's all about. I, I still get like. Fuck yeah. the world. Like, I'm still Lydia Tarr. Like, who are they to like? We, we, we shouldn't go totally to the end, but I think the final scene does suggest mm-hmm. that she's really in, not just in, in for the state of sort of fame because she's in yeah. a situation which is so different, but she's treating the whole process with respect. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. treating like, the, the talking about the composer's respect. intent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Although I, I'm still, I still struggle with thinking that that what she has maintained there is not her, her love and respect of music, but the control and authority that she could no longer get in New York. She finds a place where she can still have it. Mm, She plainly wasn't cowed. No. Right. Honestly, like I had a flash watching it this time of maybe the whole Lydia Tarr thing is the fantasy. And here was a really talented girl from Staten Island whose life didn't go as she wanted it to go, maybe the kind of like going to the Philippines to do a a concert like that is kind of who she is professionally, but she all, but she has these So in other words, maybe like more Mulholland drive that the first part of the movie is 
the dream and the le- second part of the movie is m- closer to reality. But that doesn't really work because what yeah. is all the Lydia Tarr stuff then, like in the, the details of that? So I don't think it works, but there's something about the way that scene is shot that makes you feel like, oh, this is just that character. And she had big dreams and she got old. And I mean, everything that you were saying before, David, was fits with this. Like uh, she wishes to she wants to be young and have her whole future ahead of her. But instead, it has this kind of what she considers a mediocre work, you know, like work a day kind of career as a conductor that involves certain indignities like playing for conducting for video game cosplay conferences whatever (laughs) right it is kubrickian in the sense of uh eyes wide shut where we're having almost the exact conversation about it defying any interpretation of whether or not it's fully in anybody's head because it's ethereal throughout but you don't you don't ever get the sense that you're like okay this part was dream this part was reality like it's all just one big blended together and i it's true like i can't help but think that the scenes we see of her life as lydia tar are just the way that i think you would write like if you were like i want to have a, a life as a famous composer and i want this to happen and i want this to happen this to happen like it is as if she could script her life like and then i want to be interviewed on stage about my career and i want to have done all uh, nine Mahler or, or whatever, eight, nine Mahler symphonies with the same orchestra. And, and but then it, I get taken down by me too, like yeah, but James then it's Levine like, and then it's uh, like, Charles Dutois. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, wait, so that can't have been part of her fantasy unless, unless part of her fantasy is what she's mentions in the Juilliard scene of being obliterated, where she has a fantasy huh. of being publicly sacrificed. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. Like it se- it seemed like ego crush, like the death she has built up, yeah. And uh, that emotion when she said, "You until we're up there and we get completely obliterated or whatever," like she had that passion when she said that that made me keep thinking about that. Like about, yeah. connected to this, but a separate question: as much innuendo as you get about her having sexual affairs with these young women, um, we never see any evidence of it. Uh, even with Olga, never see any evidence of her like setting it up, anything up sexually. Like, and I almost thought it's more like, of course, these two things can't be totally disentangled, but it's almost like she's feeding off the vitality and youth and promise and confidence of Olga more than she is just imagining her naked. I don't know. What do you think about like what do you think just about her sexuality in this regard? Yeah, Paul, good, I think you have that's a good yeah. question. Um I there's two questions here. One question you could be skeptical about is does she really have is, is she really a sexual predator in this way? Or does she just really like the company, become infatuated, want to be with these women, want to support these women, but it doesn't quite go there. I I think that that's I I think that's the most parsimonious thing that she does have sex with them or wants to. Um, Sharon, I think, alludes to this at some point, you know, her history of previous affairs. And this is what Sebastian says to her, too. But then there's the second question, which is what's going on in these affairs? And it's the sort of question which could be asked. It's more typically asked about a man, you know, a a man seeking out these much younger women who are under his control. Is, Is it simply the sex or is it, you know, 
being young again, being being respected, being in a, maybe even being in a position of of benign power. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like she has these manicured suits and she's worried about gaining weight. Then there's Olga, who's like first shishlik, then veal, you know, at the <laughs> yeah. restaurant, and it's like you can see that she's like, I need this, like I need this injected yeah. into me. It feels like. Yeah, kind of almost vampire-like at uh, with Olga. I mean, the reason I even raise the question, because I agree with you, Paul, it's very heavily implied, but we just never, we see the genesis of this whole Olga thing. And yeah. I don't think we ever see her do anything like sleazy sexually with her, even if there's all sorts of other power issues that come up. Um, is it, am I completely imagining this? Is there a little flash of, like toward the end, um, a little flash of Krista's red hair, mm-hmm. like making out with or like kissing the neck of in a dream. Of yeah, yeah, it is in her dream. It's in her yeah, dream. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it, yeah, it's in that crazy yeah. dream. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I think the, those things are are both true. Uh, that that there's probably something sexual there, and that there is cl- like clearly there is a desire to capture the energy of youth. So it's like unclear whether she wants to be these people or fuck these people. And it's probably both. I like and, I like the vampire metaphor. Like yeah, I think I'm complaining yeah. too much about Francesca, who I really do see her tar size. But she looks like the the vampire has after the vampire has drained, drained, <laughs> all, of, drained all of her blood, <laughs> used her up. Right, and she doesn't yeah. give that same kind of energy and confidence and vitality anymore. Yeah. and so that's why she gets discarded uh, for for Olga. There is just to me like an overwhelming. Um, desire for control that's so dominant here and i think it fits in very well with the theme of her as a conductor and having what she says about having complete control um it seems like she you're right tamler we never see her actually try to like get physical with these women in fact when she's like in a bathrobe and um because Mm -hmm. because she's like cleaning herself off from the, the 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 contagion of the old lady um she could very well be try to be seductive to Olga because Olga shows up at her door when she's in a bathrobe and, and, and she, she shows up soaking wet. Like, yeah, she's yeah. yeah, she's like, do you have a From towel? And and, yeah. and and nothing happens. Yeah. But the the way that she manipulates and the machinations that everything that she does to get it mm-hmm. perfectly the, be the case that not just that she exerts her will to get Olga the the solo, but that she convinces the orchestra that mm-hmm. they arrived at that judgment on their own. Yeah. It's just so masterful. So it's like it's she, a conduct. Think, it's like yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's like she's getting off on that part of it just as much, if not more, on the on the the sexual conquest part. Um, yeah, it, for sure. Yeah, and the way that she tightly, you know, blacklisted Krista you know, exerted her control, whatever happened there, the falling out, like she was like, yeah, like she didn't just fail to support her. She actively was writing these emails to yeah. all of those people saying like, do not, this woman is, is not that's her. unforgivable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Unless she really was a problem. We don't know. Like, it's true. you know, I mean, it could be that both of them are bad. <laughs> like, uh, not it was such, such an exercise of power mm-hmm. that she, she could, she could do it. Just I, so <laughs> people like on Twitter, you know, get it right. David is the victim blamer. Uh, <laughs> not, not me. <laughs> you know, I know, I know of not one but two academic stories involving somebody sending letters to destroy, uh, a faculty member sending uh, letters out to destroy a graduate student. 
in neither case was there a sex was there a sexual thing in both cases it was just they didn't like the register much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it was this philosophy <laughs> i think this is best best discussed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what no just say it and then tamler will bleep it and then people will ask us to <laughs> <laughs> yeah unless he forgets <laughs> then i have to spend the next year in court <laughs> So all of a sudden she goes to the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah. It's already like, like when you said, David, that she still wants to be in control, she's not even in control for the Philippines. Like they tell her, oh, the composer is not flying in from Osaka. Sorry about that. Yeah. And she doesn't even have the score yet. Uh, And they're like, oh, it just came and they give it to her. Um, But they gave her some nice gift baskets. They did. Yeah. (laughs) She's She's in the the, the shitty hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Men are kind of clucking at her as she walks by the street, down right. the street. It's the only corner of the world in which she's still wanted, though. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Go. She asks for uh, the hotel person for a massage. This is a scene, and again, like another somewhat mysterious scene. Um, I take it she really just wanted an actual massage. Uh, yes, and uh, he sends her to. Um, the a massage, quote unquote, massage right. place, and uh, she doesn't totally know what's going on. They lead her into this room where there are a bunch of women all laid out. I didn't the first note of this, but in a fishbowl that is like an orchestra. Yeah, uh, uh, and uh. the one that raises her eyes at her is number five, Mahler's yeah. fifth. Oh, um, very yeah. nice. Yeah. And then she just immediately runs out and throws up. Like, what do you think? Why does she have that reaction? So, so first, is, is, is it obvious it was a brothel as opposed to, I guess, a massage place where you choose your masseuse? I'd... Yeah, I, I feel like it's just so like I don't I don't think you would ever go to a place where yeah. where you could choose among your masseuses for <laughs> young, attractive <laughs> <A> fishbowl. <laughs> yeah. I'm just I'm just so naive. Yeah. So I mean the, the simple thing she threw <laughs> what up. What kind is, of massage place do you go? <laughs> and the simple story is she throws up because she's guilty and ashamed and Yeah. That's yeah, very very Freudian. Is it that she that's how they think of her, that they would send her to that place when yeah. she asks for oh. a massage? Here's what they think about. You. Here's what they think about. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that I thought that the the fishbowl scene reminded her of her exploitation of people. Yeah. That's yeah. how I read it too, where that makes more where sense. Actually. It's never been in such stark clarity for her that she's just using people in this way. But it, it's not inconsistent with what you said, Tyler, where it's like, well, that's, no, no, we know that this is who you are, so like here, mm-hmm. right? And so she's confronted with her own sort of use and abuse of, of others. Yeah, that's um, like what Sharon says about her. You've only had one relationship in your whole life that's not transactional, and that's yeah. with Petra. With Petra. This is so starkly transactional. And then she's conducting. Yeah. You know? Uh, it's like Rocky Rocky Three. He had to get knocked down and <laughs> build himself up. I, I can't <laughs> wait for Tar 2. <laughs> 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 Starts at the bottom, works yourself up again. <laughs> um, I, you know, I forgot to pay attention on the second time around, but um, something I was reading said that of all the ironies in the last conducting scene, she's actually conducting to a click track. Like there's actually like a metronome in her ears, which huh. 
makes really? her job even. Uh, that's what it said. I, I didn't yeah. pay attention, but like, but which just also just goes to show, yeah, like that thing that you thought was so important is actually it's <laughs> not so, in your control anymore. Yeah, it's right. like that. If that's true, that's yeah. probably what that's saying. You don't get to control time anymore. Yeah. Your uh, right hand can't do it. Like, can't. yeah. Yeah. Time is going by at the rate that it is, whether you like it or not. You have no yeah, control over yeah. it. That, yeah, that to me is yeah. the like I don't know what to make of like what's real and what's not, but that always comes through to me. Any reading that I have. Yeah. One scene we didn't talk about, but we could is right before that. She's guess to go on a tour with, mm-hmm. um, I guess, a, two very young people. Oh yeah. Um, we're gonna show them around our beautiful country. Yeah, they talk about how she can't swim in the river because there are crocodiles, which are there from uh, when they filmed Apocalypse Now in the <laughs> Philippines. They're still that's a true story apparently that they brought in crocodiles. I was wondering and, that, yeah, yeah. Huh. and um, and then I think the significant part of that scene, aside from just giving us a sense of her life now, is when they do stop to at this kind of waterfall and she's watching the two of them, the two young people play kind of yeah. splash each other and she's behind in like a little cave behind the yeah. waterfall. Yeah. Um, Where yeah. they put old so, people. Just I can't get their energy anymore. I'm blocked off from their energy maybe right. or something. And there's, there's something to me about the wall of waterfall noise. Like she's literally being blocked off by a wall of noise as well as the mm-hmm. physical uh, waterfall. Um, yeah. Wistfully. That's how I feel like when I'm looking at young people now. I'm like wistfully yeah. looking at them. I remember when I had fun frolicking. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also what makes me sad when uh, young people aren't like that. You know? <laughs> or when they don't frolic and you want to say When you're sitting there waiting to watch them and they're not frolicking. <laughs> like, come frolic already. <laughs> I'm trying to feed off your frolicking. <laughs> what the fuck? It just, it's just, you know, a, a friend of mine told me there was a point where, you know, you just... The point where women would notice him and appraise him. And then there was a point where they would notice him and say, nah, not really. I don't think so. <laughs> and then there's a point where he became an invisible man and their yeah, eyes right. would go right, right through. It's so that's, sad. That's how she is at yeah. the, you know, in the, even in the scene where she's getting the tour, they're kind of paying attention to her, but not really. They're yeah, doing yeah. their job, you know, but she used to be like the center of everybody's world uh, yeah. who she interacted with. And, and now uh, Olga, who she has put all this work in to, engineering this uh for her career doesn't even give a fuck like she doesn't i and it seems i'm sure she knows that like that tar was doing this stuff on her behalf and she just can't be bothered to even like even flirt really you know olga is completely immune to whatever she would use on krista taylor or francesca or something like that it's like you can't reach olga like that yeah, and you know you're you're at that career stage where where Lydia is with all that success. It's the the one source of power that people have there is their their worldly success, and she, clearly she's like, I think wanting to impress uh, Olga, and Olga's just yeah, cool, yeah. you know. Text, let me text some people. Sophie Callard is the actress, and she is a real cellist, and she is actually playing the cello. I was going to say, there's no way they could fake that. Like that, like, yeah. Also, we talked about the performances and we talked about the sound, but let's say something about the house, the, the, the house that he, that she and Sharon live in, the brutalist architecture is amazing. (laughs) It's so, I I love it. I spent so much time looking up, looking it up online. I think it was, (laughs) it was, it was an old Nazi bunker. 
of some sort. Oh, really? Right well, well, layers, layers upon yeah. layers here <laughs> of anti-Semitism. Um, <laughs> Todd Field, I have not seen the other movies. Have In you? The bedroom, Cameron's? Little yeah. Children, no. Uh, oh, I, saw, I saw Little Children. Um, oh, yeah? What else? Do did you remember you? anything? No. I, I actually... In the Bedroom was his other one. Yeah, no. His first one. What, what else did he do? That's it. Just three movies. Wow. Three movies and, yeah. and not, I think this is the first one in like. 16 years. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Apparently he did that. I mean, he said this and she said this, that he did the film for Kate Blanchett and he would not have proceeded if she said no. That's great. Yeah. That's great. It does feel like she had to, like you need an uh, that level of performance. And uh, I completely changed whatever annoying opinion I had about her before seeing this. It's completely uh, 180 degree. I was rooting for her for, in the Oscars and, and yeah. for the yeah. movie a bit. Yeah. But. I, I continue to worship at her feet even more. Um, <laughs> Also, back to what Tamler was saying about never seeing on-screen, uh, like uh, physical, like like sex stuff. Um, I'm glad, like that does add a, a, something more interesting to me. Like it would have been like if she was just like whatever making out and like trying to go up Olga's skirt. Like it, it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah, like, she doesn't even ever like touch her inappropriately. You yeah. know, like it's. Uh... I think it's an, really an open question and whether, yeah. I, but again, like whether any Lydia Tarr exists is an open question. <laughs> so like, I, you know, uh, I really don't, it, it's so funny because like, I don't know what to think about like what it, what the underlying reality of this movie is. Like, I really don't. Like, is it a literal ghost story? Because it sometimes yeah. seems yeah. like it's a literal ghost story. She's being yeah. haunted. Yeah, no, like, we, I mean, we barely talked about the, that thriller aspect. I mean, um, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody, but it's just the kind of movie that, like, of course we love because it defies, <laughs> it defies our, like, ability to, to categorize it, to make, to make any coherent story of it. It's a vibe. Like, it, it really is like a meditation on something. What that something is is what we've been trying to figure out, but, it's never going to be as clear as as a, a story, but I love movies that give you the facade of the structure of a story, yeah, and and give you hint after hint after hint that it can't be that, yeah, like yeah, it's just yeah. yeah, it's so good. It's I will uh, say that I think I'm pretty sure about this. Sebastian is Kaiser Sose. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, in a, in a tar we, extended universe, there'll be a Sebastian movie. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he does have an office full of tchotchkes that would allow him to start spinning stories. About yeah. <laughs> she has such scorn for his uh, collection. Yeah, did you? Yeah, I read this. I didn't notice it when I watched it that she steals his pen. Yeah, because, because he it, keeps doing the clicking. clicking. Oh, I didn't yeah. notice yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, any final thoughts? No, can't, no. can't wait to see the next thing the guy does. Yeah, <laughs> Even yeah, though it might yeah, be another 15 years. I hope it's not another 15 years, but, but he deserves... Uh, I know he got a lot of praise, but he deserves even more. Sophie Callard, if you're listening to this, call me. <laughs> She's not going to call you. <laughs> I don't call you. <laughs> of course you would like a character who loves veal. Did she say she was a vegetarian before? 
No, uh, Lydia Tarr says that. cucumber salad is pretty much the only option if you're a vegetarian. Oh, which got it. Yeah, you can interpret as like, are you a lesbian? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. But. <laughs> yeah, she de- definitely was testing her out. Like she wa- she clearly wanted her to be a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. In, in that way. Oh, oh, and then you can cut this out. But she also says, "What about fish?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, she does say it's that. True. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's like I'm more explicit even than I thought. Like totally. Yes. <laughs> um the smell, I, like I remember the only the reason I knew of the, the vegetarian thing was because like I remember reading some like way back in the day they were like porn reviews and they would call like lesbian scenes veggie scenes. Like so really? if you're into veggie scenes, yeah. Vegetarian. Really? Yeah. yeah. Because of no meat? Yeah, and then fish, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. no meat. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Maybe they should all get that. I thought it was just some sort of health stereotype, like granola, you know. Yeah, (laughs) Mother, it's like the ocean. This is a Deadwood reference, Paul. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, Yeah, well... <laughs> that's that's how we're gonna end our discussion of the movie. You know, we did we didn't even give to, give Paul a chance to to pimp his book. Oh, I mean, I know we. Oh have yeah, by by psych. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna, we'll splice that in. Yeah. Paul has a new book. Yeah, buy Paul's book, psych. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. That yeah. sounds like you're saying buy Paul's book. Psych. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was. You on... didn't think that one through, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> also, the problem is there's a show which I've seen before called Psych, and still when yeah. you go to Amazon, it still is what you get when you talk. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's a catchy tune. Yeah. Psych you out in there. <laughs> oh wow, you're like Lydia Tarr, yeah. mastery yeah. of music. That's right. <laughs> time. Um, All right. Okay. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.